0: Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. I'm handing over the mic to my colleague, Patricia Sabka, Managing Business Editor for Al Jazeera Digital, for her to share her take on some stories. Enjoy, I'll be back.
1: The world's two largest economies are colliding on multiple fronts.
0: Has China beaten America at the globalization
1: game? the United States could relinquish its title to being the world's biggest economy by 2028.
0: Economic, diplomatic and even military tensions between the two rival superpowers are continuing to rise.
1: But the biggest challenge to China may well come from within, because the country is wrestling with some major problems, from falling birth rates to rising inequality. I'm Patricia Sabga, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. To get an idea of how concerned China's ruling Communist Party is about income inequality, look no further than the country's billionaires, especially its tech titans. They've become very generous lately. I spoke with someone who covered the trend for Al Jazeera.com.
2: My name is Michael Standard. I've been in China since 2009, reporting mainly for Bloomberg Industry Group, but also for a a wide range of other outlets.
1: So, you wrote a piece for us recently about the sudden wave of generosity that's been sweeping China's billionaires. Can you give us an idea of who some of them are and how they made their fortunes?
2: Sure. Jack Ma of Alibaba fame, he leads the list.
1: When it comes to Alibaba, there's one man synonymous with the company, just like Steve Jobs was to Apple or Jeff Bezos
0: is to Amazon. His name is Jack Ma.
2: Jack Ma is like intrinsically a public guy. He just loves the spotlight and he handles it brilliantly. I think he has around the latest I saw is about $60 billion in in wealth. And then, of course, you also have Pony Ma from Tencent, the big tech company here in Shenzhen.
0: Pony Ma. Pony Ma. Founder, president, CEO, and executive board member of internet and media company Tencent. One of the wealthiest people in in China. Uh, Very quiet.
2: Further down, it's mostly tech industry people, people in real estate, that sort of thing.
1: China has more than 1,000 billionaires, and many of them have been writing big checks. Jack Ma was named the country's most generous by Forbes last year after he donated nearly $500 million to charitable causes. This year, Wang Xing, founder of food delivery giant Meituan, donated $2.3 billion of his fortune to worthy causes, while the founder of ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, gave $77 million to education. And the list goes on and on.
2: Most of this is going towards education. I think uh, that's been the leading philanthropy direction for the last few years. Also, poverty alleviation is something that's come up more recently.
1: So I want to talk about the sudden surge of private gift giving. What's driving it? When did China's ultra wealthy suddenly get the message that it's time to open up the purse strings and start spreading the wealth, if you will, with the charity that begins at home?
2: So uh, I think Beijing has been increasingly concerned about the gap between rich and poor in the past several years. The recent surge seems to be somewhat related to the crackdown on big tech in China.
1: That recent crackdown started in November, when Chinese regulators pulled the plug on the initial public offering of Jack Ma's Ant Group. It came after he criticized regulators in October for stifling innovation.
0: Why is this Jack Ma billionaire laying low?
1: This all really started when he spoke at a Chinese banking conference and made some pretty inflammatory comments about the banking system. And at that point, it really attracted the ire of regulators. Then in April, Chinese regulators hit Alibaba with a $2.8 billion antitrust fine. But Michael says the tech crackdowns, not the only message the billionaires received.
2: So you've seen language in the recent 14th five-year plan about something called the third, distribution, which is, is kind of a redistribution of wealth. And they say charity is part of that and, and philanthropy is part of that. It kind of ex- explicitly says it should be going towards education. It should be going towards innovation, anything that kind of helps develop the next level of high-tech experts.
1: That official nudge to donate to certain causes didn't come as a surprise, says Michael.
2: I think many of these people knew this was coming. I'm not sure if they knew in what form. And then going back to November last year, that's when Jack Ma started to come under pressure after his speech criticizing the regulatory officials. I think a lot of that sent a chill to the ultra-wealthy, high-tech class. And they said, okay, we need to be able to read the wins, read the tea tea leaves, and see what we need to do to be on the good side of the party.
1: That's the ruling Communist Party, And Michael's not the only one watching this dance between billionaires and the government.
0: They're scrambling to interpret what they think the government would want them to do it.
1: That's Einar Tangen. He's a Beijing-based commentator on economics and political affairs.
0: There's no one whispering in their ear, give money to this fund, all right? They might have advisors who are trying to see into their crystal ball, but you don't have people calling up and say, you better give $2 billion to this or else. It, it's not exactly that way. Trying to get back into the good books. Remember a lot of these entities owe their initial business to the government because where would Alibaba be if Amazon had come in and taken over the market? Where would DD be if for some reason Uber had been able to come in and establish a threshold?
1: Didi is a ride-hailing app, China's homegrown version of Uber. And like other tech behemoths, it too has fallen into the crosshairs of China's regulators recently. Didi pumping the brakes today,
2: the Chinese ride-sharing giant taking a tumble amid a new regulatory crackdown.
1: Einar says the gift-giving and the reigning in of billionaires stems from concerns over the size and power of China's tech giants.
0: I think it has a lot to do with China's reaction to what they see as monopolies. Basically, you have Tencent and Alibaba who can raise limitless funds. They can go to the market and say, look, we we want to raise $10 billion. Well, what are you going to do with it? Uh, We're going to buy another monopoly. (laughs) And you know what? The market loves that. Why? Because you're not competing for people's business. You're simply taxing them. If they want something, they have to go through you and you can charge whatever you want.
1: China's government has issued new rules to get a lid on monopolies. They've come over the last year as part of its efforts to check the power of private technology firms.
0: The anti-monopoly watchdog firmed up these new rules taking effect. They had a consultative period with various government bodies and now they are official.
1: When do you really think that, that the Chinese Communist Party really sent the message that there needs to be a wealth redistribution by these tech
0: titans? Well, this is the thing about China. There, there are very few sudden messages. All right. There was a red line drawn in uh, 2013 when she came into power where he said no more corruption.
1: China's president, Xi Jinping, spearheaded a massive anti-corruption campaign, which has ensnared more than a million
0: officials the party wants to stay in charge and guide China, it cannot be corrupt. It cannot lose the confidence of the people. So you see a gradual tightening down, more and more signals being sent out. But at the same time, you had companies that were just growing like gangbusters. So, you know, the government was sending very clear message before, but some thought that they were too big to fail. And this is perhaps the difference between China and the US. The government will take action. There's no such thing as too big to fail. The only thing that's too big to fail is the party itself.
1: The party marked its 100th anniversary earlier this month. And just a few months before that celebration, Xi Jinping
0: made an announcement.
1: 832
0: counties and 128,000 villages have been removed from the poverty list. The arduous task of eradicating extreme poverty has been fulfilled. We have created another miracle that will go down in history.
1: Of course, earlier this year, Xi Jinping declared that basically absolute poverty had been vanquished in China, which is a remarkable feat. I mean, the transformation over the past 40 years has been remarkable. But at the same time, we also know that you've got 40% of the population living on $140 a month or less. So tell me about where China is now in its
0: transformation. There's a big divide between North-South, between urban and rural. And China you know, is, is struggling with that because they're a socialist system. When you say poverty, they eliminated extreme poverty. But they didn't stop there. I mean, they they talked about a rural revitalization program. And this will take the next step, which is to bring that 40 percent upward.
1: So where does tackling inequality rank on the list of priorities for the Chinese Communist Party?
0: I think it's really about second or third. The first uh, priority is to maintain the state. They feel very much under attack by the U.S., The second part is getting over these kind of economic hurdles.
1: Because if they don't, China could become marooned in what economists call a middle-income trap. That's when a country develops to the point where it crawls out of poverty, but fails to reach a higher, more developed status.
0: And then after that, the most important part would be income equality, bringing people along. And it really follows on the other two, the reason that they want to keep the state viable, they want to get over the economic hurdles, is to get to this last issue, which is all about trying to make sure people have a somewhat decent life.
1: I asked Michael whether a decent life is attainable for someone living on $140 a month or less.
2: It depends a bit on where you are. If you're in a place like Shenzhen and you're trying to live on that, you're not going to be able to live at all.
1: Michael's based in Shenzhen. Just over 40 years ago, it was a small fishing city of about 30,000 people on the South China Sea. Then in 1980, the Chinese government designated it as a special economic zone, opening it up for foreign investment. Now Shenzhen is a gleaming tech hub with a population of more than 17 million. That comes with its own challenges.
2: A place like Shenzhen has specific issues to living here. The housing prices are so high, it's on par with California housing prices. So say if you want to have a a middle-class lifestyle, you want to have a house, not rent, you want a car, you want your kids to go to school, all those things are increasingly more difficult in the last couple years here in Shenzhen. So they're trying to relieve some of that, but there are a lot of these things in place that make it difficult
1: You talk about, really, it depends on where you live if you're talking about $140 a month or less. But what are the main pressure points on on a median income family in China? What are the major financial pressure points that they're dealing with right now?
2: The biggest one would be property. So if you have a son and that son wants to get married, the son is expected to have a house and, and own the house, not rent. So in a place like Shenzhen, that's impossible for many people. In other areas, it's a lot more reasonable. And then education. Everyone seems to think they need to have their kid go to all these other activities outside of school. So extra English, extra music lessons. And those have become increasingly expensive in the last several years to the point where the government has has tried to crack down on those companies and say, okay, the school system should be trying to provide these services. But it's a slow process to do that. And these private companies were, were very good at that. And they did provide a quality outside class that was not available in the schools.
1: Meanwhile, some of China's youth are resisting the drive to do more. And they're doing this by embracing a new phrase, tongping.
2: Lying flat or, or tongping is this action of doing as little as possible to, to get by. There's also this term called involution, which is talked about as this feeling of despair or burnout. And a lot of it relates to this pressure in the last five, 10 years, particularly from the tech industry for a 996 working culture where people are working nine in the morning till nine at night, six days a week. That had become kind of the norm in the tech industry. And even in other industries, you were expected to just be there for the job.
1: The concept of Tongping gained traction on social media earlier this year. One musician even wrote a song about it. A
2: lot of this has led to a feeling among particularly the youth that are coming up, the ones that are not finding jobs as soon as they graduate, that it's okay, what's the point of, of doing all this? If you're not going to be able to buy a house in Shenzhen, You're not going to be able to advance very fast because things have become so difficult and expensive. You're not going to really want to have kids because it's going to be hard to get them to schools. So all of these different pressures have created this lying flat uh, philosophy. I don't know if it's a philosophy, but this whole idea that if you make a lot of effort, you're not really going anywhere. So lying flat is the best thing to do right now.
1: What Michael said about financial pressures and people not really wanting to have kids, that's a huge problem for China right now. So the government is lifting restrictions on how many kids married couples can have.
0: To encourage couples to have a third child, you should first improve housing, medical care, and education. The house prices are rocketing and education is not very ideal. So I don't think many people would want a third child under the sudden three-child policy.
1: People around me, like my friends and besties, they all don't want a third child because young people nowadays are under a lot of pressure. They have no time to take care of kids at home because of work. And if they take care of kids full-time, that means no work. So many people choose not to have a third child. And it's not just a concern for individuals. Because China's population is rapidly aging, and there aren't enough babies being born to support all those old people, that could endanger economic growth.
2: It's a threat to future growth, particularly because so many people are becoming old so fast. I mean, you have a a huge portion of the population that will need to be taken care of in their elderly age. And... You don't have this the same kind of uh, elderly care system that you would in other advanced countries. So there's a huge concern that those costs and that healthcare associated with it is gonna drag the economy down. There won't be enough people to keep the economy vibrant. Which is
1: why the government has tried to ease the burden on families, with initiatives like cracking down on the private tutoring industry. Other potential reforms are also under discussion to achieve what Xi Jinping calls common prosperity.
2: From what I've seen, those policies will be coming down the, the pipeline, but they haven't really said exactly what they're going to do to encourage people to have more children or have any children at all. And it kind of depends on where you're at. So in the rural areas, the pressures are a little bit different than in major cities. You just don't have the access to the same services in those areas that you would in in a big city.
1: Is there any danger of any of these potential fixes backfiring? Is there a danger in sort of encouraging billionaires about where they should spread their wealth? Because sometimes when you try to fix a problem, you end up creating another problem.
2: There's the danger of capital flight, particularly with that kind of push against these billionaires. That's something they've tried to restrict as much as possible. There's these strict requirements about how much you send outside the country and very strict uh, banking rules about money that goes abroad. So there's always concern that there'll be a, a quick flight of capital from the country.
1: But Einer thinks more good than harm will come from clipping the wings of China's high-flying tech moguls.
0: Innovation is about being able to profit from your ideas, and that is not the situation here. We're talking about fat, bloated <laughs> monopolists who are no different today than the, you know, the robber barons of the roaring 20s. That didn't work out well. We would go through these periods of time where we're always trying to correct the balances. And this is the time to do that. Because
1: the government is very concerned, says Einer, about the potential consequences of doing nothing.
0: The Chinese government is afraid of one constituent, and that's the people. And their legitimacy is operational legitimacy. And I hope the government remains concerned about what the people think. Otherwise, it's not legitimate.
1: I asked Michael what he thinks about inequality and whether it could become a serious problem for the Communist Party.
2: I think they think that perception of this huge wealth gap could, you know, make people upset and, you know, could potentially challenge the party. So anything that makes the image look less like they're delivering on the goal to make people's lives better, which is is kind of the pact that they've made, it's like, okay, it's it's always going to get better, it's always going to get better. If that looks like it's stagnated or is dropping, then that's a problem for them. My neighbors or main concerns they're they're speaking about are, okay, the kids' education, can we get them into school? What kind of classes we can get them into? Can I afford to pay the mortgage on this property here in Shenzhen, these sort of things. So there's a big squeeze on them and I, I think they're trying to navigate their way through that. It's quite difficult.
1: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Amy Walters, Dina Kesbe, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, and me, Patricia Sabga, sitting in for Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back.